Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today I'm gonna be dedicating this episode to my grandmother Mavon, who unfortunately passed away today. And I'm sure that he'll be, you know, very excited because you know it has that creativeness, you know, also the background of our guest today. So today I think that we're gonna be learning quite a bit, you know, with our guest. You know, he's done it multiple times, not just once, but many times. And I think that we're gonna be really learning what it takes to really take something from nothing all the way into something meaningful, and then also doing that full cycle, whether it is doing the fundraising, the acquisition, you name it. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Yuval Brisker. Welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you? So very well, very well. And here what I want to do is a little bit of, 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 of walk through memory lane, Yuval. So in your case, born and raised in Israel, but you know, obviously there had a a blend there of traveling a little bit because your father was a diplomat. So tell us about life growing up. Well, you know, I, 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 I'm a multiculturalist, that's for sure. I ended up having, you know, a life on, on, in two different countries in Israel and the United States. It was, it was before there was a lot of, you know, a lot of exchange between that much exchange between the two countries. So uh, I got here as a child and, you know, became, you know, very Americanized and then felt very at home here, but also I had a strong affinity to where I was born into the country that I was, you know, was born in. And, uh, so I've always had this kind of almost, you know, split personality. Like there's an Israeli side of me and there's a, an American side of me. And, uh, and, and they, they cohabitate pretty well, um, especially, you know, since the two countries are close. And also the two cultures are pretty close. An immigrant culture, a very, you know, ambitious culture of, of entrepreneurial activity and entrepreneurship. So the, the, you know, we say Israel is a startup nation, nation right? So I, it kind of is in my blood and the feeling of, uh, of, uh, of, you know, exploration and, and, and discovery has really been, you know, part of who I've been from, you know, from the day you know, my parents started traveling and taking me, you know, to new places uh, and, and really exposed me to the world. So I, I really have that, um, you know, desire to discover and to, you know, go to new places. And that's both, you know, geographically, but also from a business and, and career point of view, kind of really ingrained in me. But I think that that also opens a different worldview, no? Because I guess new people, new places, to a certain degree, that allows you to be more comfortable to a certain degree with uncertainty. And I'm sure that that has served you well 
especially throughout the years of yours being an entrepreneur. Would you say that? Would you say that's accurate? A hundred percent. I think that when you experience movement as a child, there's a lot, you know, there's certain instability to going from place to place, especially when you're, you know, in, in elementary school or even in, you know, middle school or, or high school, which is I, I experienced a, a few, you know, move, you know, pretty serious moves in my life, in my, in my early life. Uh, I think that really gets you to to a place where you realize there there is no such thing as you know steady and 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 stable that there's a lot of change and and you need to deal with it and and that you you're open to it. I mean, you learn that that's kind of a, a fundamental part of your life is sort of an, an I would say uh, instability and uh, and and change and and I think that the knowing that how to actually address a certain level of as you say uh you know the unknown uh is, is something that that i i you know got as a child and, and it's been worked for me very well apart from the fact that i also learned english as a child and, and to speak english like an american even though i wasn't born here i i sound like i was born here um and people always say you know how come you're israeli and have such a you know, have no accent at all and, and, and i think those things you know, it also actually opens your mind in a certain way, right? You, you, by by being bilingual from a very early age, you you adapt to to thinking in different ways and structures and and being open to a whole host of different things that that you know that maybe a lot of people, other people you know are not as open to you know whether it's people or places or language or culture or race or you know or or any one of those first thing you experience it yourself right you yeah. you're a you you come as a child as to, to a foreign place you're a foreigner and you're you're an outsider and so you learn how to operate as an outsider and as as somebody who's who's not necessarily part of a mainstream so it it, it really changes your view i think and and really for me it, it created a worldview of openness and global, uh, and global, you know, and a view of the globe as as as, a, as, as one thing. And and no, I have no trepidation or no fear about travel or working in different cultures or coming to places where I don't know people or I don't know the language or the place. It it's just very natural. But I think that being in the U.S., you know, at least um, it really felt like home for you because you went back to Israel to be part of the of the army. I mean, in this case, it was the Air Force, uh, and 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 you came back to study architecture. So, so why coming back? I mean, you know, I grew up in here, and I felt so uh, I, ver I was very connected to the place. I mean, there, you know, and my father went to school here too, so I was imbued with this kind of passionate, you know, love for the United States and. And, and and an understanding, a deep understanding of its uniqueness in relation to other places that I'd lived in the world. So uh, I, I I was attached to the place. I think, uh, uh, you know, I, I still see it as a, you know, obviously an amazing place in a unique, you know, country, even with its difficulties, I think, even the way it deals with its, you know, with its, its ills, its problems, it's very externalized and thought and, and, and well sort of, you know, debated and it's a it's a debate society in a sense and i really like that i really like the idea that there was an, an ultimately there was an extreme openness here even though there are parts of society that are very closed there are also parts of society that are very open and the general sense of, of the united states to me is still a, a country of discovery and exploration and a lot of openness to the new uh and and no fear you know it's a land where there's a very little very little fear i think um, and, yeah. and that's because of the way that the country has evolved over the years, you know, 
from its founding all the way to today. It's always been about pushing, pushing, pushing the boundaries. Um, and, and it's pushed the world, right? It's pushed the whole world along with it. So uh, I was fascinated by that as a child. And, and then, you know, when I, when I was an adult, I said, I really want to spend part of my life here and understand what it's like to, to, to succeed here. And, 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 and success here is the ultimate success, right? I mean, everybody wants to succeed here. <laughs> the American dream, you, of course. You, right. You may be from another place. You may succeed even somewhere else. But, you know, but until you succeed here, it's like the classic New York, New York, you know, until you make it there, you, you know, you, you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And, uh, 100%. you know, so I, that's how I, that's, that's what really drew me back. So, so in your case, I mean, you came back to do your studies around architecture. Then you joined this firm to really develop yourself as an architect. But you realized that uh, perhaps it was better for you to go in a different direction and uh, launch your own business. And this first business was Vi. And obviously, it didn't go as you had anticipated. But as they say, you know, every, every time is you either succeed or you learn, right? So I guess uh, with Vi, which was a pivotal moment, your first baby, you know, what did you learn out of that experience? I, I think first thing, it, it, Via, Via was really a place where I, um, emerging from a, from a solid, you know, uh, uh, salaried place of work uh, and really beginning to fend for yourself, getting work for yourself, getting, you know, jobs, understanding how to build a company and how to build a business in a small scale. Um, but but my biggest learning there was that you know I could fend for myself. I didn't need to care you know about uh, about getting a salary like my father was on a salary his whole life, you know. And so I think that was and that was a limitation in many ways. And I I I think that the 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 idea that you needed to have kind of a long term career you know job and and it, it I learned you know very quickly inside the architectural world that that it's really very very um exposed to the ups and downs of the economy um you know the minute there's an you know we we used to say in architecture you know when there's an economic economic downturn the first thing that goes is building and the last thing that comes back is building and uh, and so there was a lot of instability in that world and i learned there's no guarantees um, in finding a place of work. And so if there are no guarantees, well, why don't I go out and do it myself? You know, uh, if there is always risk involved in work, uh, in, in, a, in a place of work, well, why don't I take the work risk and, and build something of my own? So I, I started with VIA, which was kind of a natural place for me to go because it was something that I was doing already in the architectural firm, i.e. I was, I had, uh, you know, I was working on computer generated imagery uh, three-dimensional walkthroughs and, and, and animations. Um, and I felt that would be something that would be marketable and, and people would like it. But I learned very quickly that, <laughs> that it, it wasn't a mass market kind of uh, opportunity. I had to, we had to, me and I had a partner at that time, we had to actually build every single model, every single, you know, we, every single building that we were actually showing in the three-dimensional model we had to actually build it. And so it ended up being almost like building buildings. And I decided I can't, I don't want to sell one thing. I want to build it once and sell it a million times, you know? Yeah. And, and so that was kind of the, the biggest learning. The biggest learning was that, that, you know, if I really wanted to succeed, you know, economically in a major way, I'd have to, you know, build a mass market product and, and, and build it once and sell it, you know, a million times. And, 
And that was to me software at that time. So I moved into software and software, you know, design and development. And, uh, and I felt like, of course, that was also the time that the internet was blowing up and it was kind of around the dot-com era. And, um, and, you know, it was very clear that the future of, 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 of business, of society, uh, um, of culture, of economics, was it going to be in technology and particularly in the internet? It was that was very clear to me, by the way. Uh, and that's and, when you and received... so I decided I wanted to join the revolution. Yeah, you oh. you receive at that point a call from from a friend of yours, and uh, basically with the idea of you joining Maxville. Now, Maxville, I think that you know what really gave you was the possibility of meeting who became your co-founder. But, uh, right. but, but I mean, I'm sure that the experience at Maxville was great. But as you said, you know, this definitely, you know, was during the dot com and you both ended up out of a job. So how was that experience of all of a sudden thinking like, hey, what, what are we doing now? And, and how did you really come up with the initiative or, or the idea of, hey, maybe, you know, you and I, we go together and we build this company, you know, that we can do together called Toa. I mean, it's everything's a process, right? You know, when you look back, you know, from a vantage point of, you know, 15 or 20 years later, you know, everything seems very condensed and, and logical. You know, when yes. you look back, everything looks, seems like the, 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 the events that kind of, you know, followed would make sense and logical. But at that time, you know, it was, we were, we, it was the dot-com crash, you know, in 2000, 2001, and right after that, 9-11, and suddenly, you know, first thing, there was a really sense of instability and turbulence in the world. And, and so for the first, I would say, six months after, you know, those events happened, it was just, just really getting, you know, sta stabilized and getting a sense of, you know, some you know, renewed sense of purpose in the world. And and then you know it was it was a, a period of time where we we uh, thought to ourselves well we really want to work together, and we think we can you know if everyone else can do it why can't we right <laughs> that's the biggest thing you know it was like we constantly said to ourselves you know look at all these companies you know look at all this all this economic activity it's all done by people making you know taking initiative and 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 taking risk and going out and doing it and things that even look you know like they're almost you know they're they're, they're you know, facts of life in your life, like big companies, big brands, you know, at some point, somebody started those companies. At some yeah. point, somebody took a risk and, and, and started, you know, Walmart, you know, somebody took a risk and started, you know, JP Morgan Chase. I mean, th these, there was a moment where people were a brand that seems so established, you know, and so, you know, such a foundation of everyday life. There was sometimes some moment where somebody said, I'm going to take a chance, I'm going to do this. And so we kept on asking ourselves, you know, well, why can't they be us? You know, why, why we, we need to do it on our own. And so, so that's the, the beginning. And then it was just about finding the right thing uh, to, to focus our efforts on. And I was always about, you know, things, the, the everyday problems bothered me, you know. And, and I used to say, you know, if, if I experience the same problem three times and it's the same one and it brings up the same, you know, you know kind of response in me, then there's a, there's a company there. There you go. There you <laughs> There's go. a potential company to solve the problem because if I'm experiencing more than once, then a lot of other people are also experiencing it. And at that moment, that was like, uh, I, you know, uh, my partner to be called me up and said, oh, my father, my father-in-law, you know, came back from the doctor and he said, why is it that every time I go to the doctor, you know, the doctor's running late and, I, and they can't kind of call me and tell me, you know, he's running half an hour behind. 
And my partner said, well, why don't we design a piece of our software that will let people know if the doctor's running late? And I kind of thought about it and I said to myself, well, I don't really want to sell to doctors. <laughs> I don't want to sell to the <laughs> medical industry. It's too complicated. And, you know, it's quite conservative. But then I was walking down the street in New York uh, and I saw a Time Warner cable truck. And I thought to myself, well, wait a second. Maybe it's not when you go to the doctor. It's when you the doctor comes to you and the doctor happens to be like a cable doctor <laughs> or a washing machine doctor or, or, or a delivery doctor. And and you're sitting at home all day waiting for that guy to arrive. You know, at the time, people were waiting whole hours for, you know, uh, the cable guy to show up. And so I thought, well, there's a, there's an opportunity, you know, try and solve the cable guy problem. You know, find a way to predict when an appointment would happen so people don't have to sit all day. And if the, the, the technician is running late, there can be a way of notifying them. Things that look normal to us today, of course, were not then. And, yeah. and and these solutions didn't exist, like, you know, notifying you via text or stuff like that. It was completely not part of the day-to-day. -day. So we, I, I came back to the partner and I said to my partner, Irad Karmi, and I said, hey, what about this? You know, what about, you know, developing something that would allow people to not have to sit at home all day and wait for the cable guy uh, right. by giving them information about when to expect the appointment? And we started a company called ETA Direct. Um, which was expected time of arrival direct to you. Um, and and we, we really began to build, and, and we had talked a lot about, you know, technology and, and where technology was going and the web and how the web was going to become a much more integral part of enterprise, you know, software, because we were actually selling enterprise software that was, was still, you know, client server based. Is that And how were you guys making money there? Uh, you all, just for the people that are listening to really understand well the business model. Well, I mean, basically, we built a we we ended up building a full end to end solution for managing the field service workforce, and 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 so started you know selling it to large companies, cable companies particularly, starting out with cable, but then ending up selling it to telecoms and to appliance manufacturers and to Home Depot type companies and so on and so forth. But we were selling enterprise software, selling licenses. It wasn't really a license per se; it was a subscription fee, just like we we're used to paying today for almost anything that we buy you know especially in technology we're buying subscriptions yeah uh we're not nobody's buying you know no no one buys enterprise software anymore today with a license people buy you know a monthly subscription or annual subscription or a three-year subscription but that was a brand new model at that at that time and we had to really kind of invent it as we went along we took a lot of inspiration from salesforce salesforce was the you know new entrant into the market completely you know uh redefining what enterprise software was about uh but doing it on a, on a small scale to small and medium-sized businesses that at that time we immediately went for large businesses and really started trying to sell cloud-based solutions SaaS solutions to the largest companies of their kind so that was how we got paid uh the biggest heart and i think the biggest you know uh, uh challenge at the time was really to convince large businesses to not have software in their own data centers and, and, and not, you know, have their IT manage their software, but actually give it to a third party. And even if it was mission critical software, like we were providing to really entrust that, trust us. And so building trust, building, you know, uh, credibility, building, you know, long-term relationships was really what we started learning how to do. And when it came to this kind of subscription-based long-term relationships, it was integral to to the to every day, right? You were the 
that part of the company that was delivering this technology. And, uh, and our technology was incredibly unique at the time because first thing, it was completely cloud-based. Secondly, it had no app, apps on any devices. It was all, you know, web-based. Thirdly, it was using a very early, you know, some very early ideas around machine learning because the software actually learned how the people worked in the field and used that to plan and schedule the day for, and for, for the field service employees. So we were doing, we were breaking ground on a lot of different things and we did, did it quite successfully. And, uh, and as a result of that the company, you know, grew pretty rapidly and, 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 and internationally. So back to your early question about, you know, what did the movement as a child, you know, you know, how did that contribute to my success? It just made me, you know, completely fearless in, in, in going out and doing business concurrently, not just in the United States, but all around the world. That's amazing. And talking about all around the world, because, you know, you ended up rebranding to, to, to TOA. Yeah. And uh, that actually happened in Spain. Yeah, in your home country. That's it. I mean, uh, definitely uh, ETA were not the, um, the, <laughs> the, 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 the labeling that you would want to have on, on, no. on, on any company at that time. I mean, people, you know, some people might not know that ETA, ETA was the Basque terrorist organization that was basically, was, you know, wanted to break free from Spain. And oh, it yeah. was quite active, you know, in, oh, in the 90s and the 2000s. Oh, yeah. and, and, you know, the, the first real international uh, show I went to uh, was a cable show in, in Barcelona. And, and it was scheduled for like early April 2004. And we had... Our branding was all ETA Direct, ETA Direct, uh, which was the name of the company and the name of the product. Right. And then there was a big bombing in the, in the main train station in Madrid where a lot of people got killed. Oh, yeah. And the first, you know, suspect was ETA. Oh, yeah. And so I'm, you know, I, I, you know I, I'm looking at the material and I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, I'm going to have to stand in front of, you know, a sign that says ETA Direct. It's like standing in a show in New York with a sign that says, oh, Kaeda Direct, you know. Yeah. So we quickly rebranded the company and changed the name to TOA, Time, time of Arrival uh, Technologies. And, uh, and so within two weeks, we had to rebrand, rethink, re, you know, redo everything that had to do with, you know, with, with the company's you know, literature and, and material and the booth we had. And we did it. And uh, I went to the show and that was where I met my first customer and happened to be a Spanish customer named Ono. That's or, amazing. A cable company named Ono. That's amazing, and 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 what a small world that the, one of the co-founders is also an uncle of mine. So, right. uh, unbelievable, Eugenio. Well, we're connected apparently somehow. That's incredible. So, so, it so is. I guess in this case, you know, you guys, it, this was an amazing journey. I mean, you you build it to like, you know, hundreds of employees, like close to 700, 800. I, I'm wondering here, like, how did you guys go about capitalizing the business as well? You know, first thing we we bootstrapped the first rounds of the of the, uh, the first you know money came from our own pockets. Uh, I, I like to say I, I took out everything I had in my bank account, and I was actually going to school at the time at NYU, and I actually took some student loans out as well, and we put that into the company. My partner took a second mortgage on his house, so that was the first sort of you know founding. I would say seed capital was really done through that and a combination of friends and family. And then, and then from there, we really started raising money from, you know, tier one uh, VCs. Our first investor was Draper. Um, Draper's first, it was DFJ, but through one of their affiliate funds. Uh, I'm based in Cleveland, Ohio. So it was a sort of Midwestern fund. Uh, and after that, we, you know, we, 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 as we grew and we grew quite quickly. And the, the interesting thing about it was we were selling 
you know, for a small company, we were signing pretty big deals where the average, you know, uh, revenue per year per deal was over a million dollars a year. Uh, and we were still pretty small. So that was attracting a lot of capital. People were really, you know, interested in this new model of recurring revenue. Um, and, and, and how do you sort of, you know, value companies that have recurring revenue rather than, you know, companies that are buying and selling, that are selling licenses for, for software. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, as we, we close more contracts with more cable companies, uh, both in the United States and in Europe, that was our first two target markets. Then, you know, the investors started coming and really becoming interested in this model. And, and it wasn't the, the predominant model at the time for buying, you know, enterprise software. It was really new. Um, but there were a few very switched on people as always. And, uh, and, and so those, those, those people ended up, you know, um, investing in the company. I spent a lot of time raising money. Uh, I would say the predominance of my time in that time was closing, you know, going out and personally, you know, selling to customers, um, and 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 at the same time also going out and personally selling to uh, to investors. And uh, so and I was on the road all the time. What was the, the total the total amount raised prior to the acquisition? Over a hundred, I think, about one hundred and five million. One hundred and five million. Okay, got it. Um, so today it kind of sounds not that much because there's you know so much money flying around, but in those days it was a huge amount of money. Oh yeah, and 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 in this case, I mean the the outcome was very positive. You know, TechCrunch actually reported that the company was acquired for five hundred million. And uh, what I want to ask you here is, how was that acquisition like by Oracle? I mean, can you tell us how how it all came about and 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 how was that process like? When you're doing something at that level and selling to uh, enterprises as big as we were selling to around the world, then you start, you know, uh, attracting attention from competitors and or, you know, enterprise company, enterprise software companies that are, you know, that are selling to those same companies. And so I think we kept on running into Oracle and other companies, Oracle, SAP. Uh, and, and Salesforce, we kept on running into them in, in many different places. and you know, we were making a lot of noise. We were taking those customers away from those companies because they, you know, we had the most advanced software in this, in this space. Uh, we were covered by Gartner as a leader in the space, uh, the leader at the time. Um, so we really went from obscurity, you know, two guys in a, in a garage in Cleveland, Ohio, you know, which is not exactly the, a, a tech hub, you know, to, uh, to being, um, and by the way, that's another story, right? Why Cleveland, right? Uh, why, why a software company, you know, starts off in Cleveland. Uh, but, but the, uh, the reality was that as we, you know, kept on, you know, bumping into them, they got more and more interested in what we were doing. And at some point, you know, we started talking to them about partnership and filling in the gaps that they have in their, uh, in their portfolio, which they had a number of companies that were doing similar things to us, but older technology and definitely not cloud-based. So, you know, between sort of the, the success we had in, in selling to customers, large ones, and closing big deals, and raising money, uh, both from you know local money, but also mostly now from the coasts. That between that and really running into them in in all sorts of you know sales situations, taking deals away from them, and also seeing them in conferences, I think it really brought us up on the radar. And uh, and at some point they came to us and said, "Hey, do you want a partner?" And we were like, sure, let's do it. And, uh, and, 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 you know, it turned out that their, their idea of partnership was acquiring us. 
I love it. I love it. And so they just said, you know, we went out to, to, to California and they immediately told us we're interested in the company. And you stayed there for a few years doing what they call the vesting and resting. Probably, I'm not sure how much resting, but uh, definitely vesting. And, uh, and, and, and in your case, you know, after that, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So you got started with your next baby that was called Mesu at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and can you tell us about how you thought about this company and, and what was that triggering event where you said, now is the time. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I think, as I said, I was, I'm, I'm, I, my friends used to call me the stickler uh, because I, I, I always kind of find things that really bother me. And like, you know, this doesn't work, that doesn't work, you know, and, and there's got to be a solution to this problem. Right. It's, you can't like, and one of the things that kind of kept on bothering me as I was traveling was that I kept on having to, I, I kept on finding myself without cash in my pocket. And in situations where, you know, mostly I would say in, in tipping situations or in, in, in street market situations where I didn't have cash and they were only taking cash. So you're running to the ATM and, and looking for one and figuring out, trying to figure out where, where you know, exactly you're going to get cash. And I decided uh, there, there's got to be an app for that. You know, it was kind of like there's an app for that period in, in the life of our, in our life. And I said, there's got to be an app that, that allows people to give and get money just like they would with cash, meaning without having to exchange personal information, without having their, the person you're giving to have to give you their phone number or their email address, that didn't exist. And so I felt like this was an opportunity to do something that was both global, that would allow people to exchange money without having to exchange any personal information. And so the, the whole idea of privacy came out and how, does that, how, do, how do people exchange money privately today and not use crypto? And so we, we decided, myself and one of my, you know, employees from Toa, that we wanted to solve that problem on a global basis. So we were both globalists. He's Portuguese. I'm obviously American. And he, we decided, let's build an app that will work globally, not just in the United States, not just in Europe, not just in Latin America, but everywhere you go, it'll have, it'll be cross-currency. And it'll allow people to, you know, just give each other money, you know, pay each other without having to do anything in the, in the realm of personal and personally identifying information. Uh, and, and so we started that venture in, two, in January of 17 um, and, and worked, you know, over 18 months to get the application live. But by the time we got it live, you know, kind of the payment market had moved on. Hmm. And, and, there, and, and Venmo was established, you know, when we started, it wasn't as established. It wasn't, it wasn't a sort of a verb. Uh, you know, to Venmo. Yes. Uh, but by the time we made, we got the application live because it's so difficult to get a financial service application live, getting it through regulators, get it accepted by the banks, it gets accepted by all the different, you know, players in the, uh, in the, in the financial services space that need to support your ability to move money from one person to another. Yeah. By the time we got it live, market had moved on. So we were kind of finding against, and we were, we were swimming against the stream in a sense. Wow, uh, and it, and we spent about a year, you know, a year and a half trying to uh, uh, really market the application. And at some point, we decided that our the technology that we built, the foundation of the technology that we built to support our own app, was much more valuable than the app itself. So uh, instead of you know selling to the consumer market, we decided to pivot to really rebrand, restart the company with the same people and the same technology, but sell it to companies instead. 
you know, provided to companies who wanted to provide financial services to their customers. Very simple, you know, switch, but obviously very dramatic because we went from kind of trying to break into the consumer market to deciding to go back to our roots, which was, you know, enterprise sales, B2B sales, understanding how to, you know, do, you know, basically selling to large companies, large brands, delivering, maintaining those relationships and, and cultivating the long-term, you know, value that we bring to those companies. So that's what happened. And, you know, three years in, we decided, you know, this isn't going anywhere. It was a very tough decision, you know, for, for you know, once you, were, you, you created something that's very successful, like we did with Toa, accepting, you know, that some, the next thing, next thing you did is I, not successful is very difficult. You I know, hear you. like failing after success, not so simple. I hear you. And, 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 it, and, and, you know, cause your expectation is that you got, you know, you, you, you've got the golden touch, yeah. you know, you, whatever you do is going to succeed. And then you realize, well, maybe not, you know, and, and now what? And so it's a very big, you know, professional, psychological, emotional, you know, I think struggle that you have when, especially in my position where, you know, I had a huge success as an entrepreneur building an international, you know, company, like you said, employees around the world, and then selling it for a substantial sum to the enterprise software company in the world, and then integrating it successfully in the company. So there was all it was all around success, you know, through, through a lot of hardship. I'm not saying that, and you know, building success is easy. It's not. Uh, it's it, there's always you know difficulties. There are always challenges. There's always hard moments along the way. But 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 once you are successful, you feel like okay, you know, it could be hard, but I'm going to be successful. You know, yeah. but suddenly you're doing something that doesn't matter how hard you try doesn't matter how much of your knowledge and, 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 and experience you're bringing into it. It doesn't go anywhere, not because of you, but because of the market, the conditions you're operating in and, 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 you, and, 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 and coming to that realization and, 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 and making the switch and now making that switch and making it successfully again is a huge, you know, uh, a feeling of, of, of satisfaction and redemption because you 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 go from a place of, of 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 difficulty to a place of success again, uh, and so you feel like everything you've done actually was worth it. You know, absolutely. Now, in this case, obviously, doing the pivot to what became Alvier, tell us about you know, like how was that journey like, and what is the business? What ended up being the business model? You know, of Alvier. Well, I think the interesting thing about Alvier is that we're 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 actually partnering with customers by bringing our technology to name brand companies uh, and you know we already have some customers so we've been in uh, we've been alvier for about a year um and in this year we've gone from you know uh uh you know a zero uh, uh customers to having a few very large customers they're not announced yet so i can't talk about them uh, but they, but once they're be announced, you'll you'll see you know that that the 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 impact of what we're trying to do is incredibly uh, big. Uh, but our what Alvier is actually doing is actually providing a financial services technology platform that enables any brand, whether it's you know United Airlines or McDonald's or Burger King or you know or AT and T or or you know you name it to actually start providing bank accounts, debit cards, you know, uh, money transfers, uh, wire transfers, currency exchange, all the different things that banks actually provide. 
but 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 to do it to their customers. So you suddenly will be able to have a you know United Airlines bank or an American Airlines bank that will actually provide banking services to their customers, and and they can do that all very easily because they they all they need to do is just plug into our system, and our system is a sort of, sort of a turnkey, um, you know, one stop shop solution for providing financial services. So we really partner with our customers. We don't actually sell the software per se. We partner with our customers and we split the transactional, you know, revenue that comes from every transaction that people do uh, with financial, you know, products. Um, and that, you know, how do banks survive? Banks survive because they take, they, they get interest and they, and they take fees. That's it. You know, that's really where, where, you know, they, they loan, they have deposits and for those deposits, they get fees for money that comes in and out of the bank. And, and, and with those deposits, they, they do lending and that's the basic, you know, economic structure of a bank. We can provide that, the capabilities of a bank to any company. So essentially any company can be a bank or a provider of financial services and benefit from the same economic drivers that banks do fees interest rates and so on and so forth uh fees for m moving money abroad and and so on and so forth so uh, what we do right now is actually we don't sell the solution we partner with our customers to bring on as many customers onto the platform and 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 then split the the fees between us uh and and that way we help our customers our partner customers to increase revenue, increase retention, and all the different things that, that and it, that... it sounds capital intensive, though. I mean, how how which is which is a good thing, you know, as well because it it creates a defensibility. But in this case, I mean, you guys have raised quite a bit of money. How much money have you guys raised? We've raised seventy million dollars. We just announced it uh, a week ago that uh, we raised seventy million dollars to really support our growth. Nice. Um, and and really, this is in the first year of the, so so you know, Mezu kind of shut down. Yeah. Uh, but the same people, you know, and same technology kind of turned and literally pivoted around. And I'm very proud to say, you know, not only did we not lose anybody, we continue to hire, you know, people as we pivoted. Um, and and so for this and new entity, Elvier, we raised, we, we just raised $70 million. And our intention is, of course, to, you know, use that to expand in the market, to grow our market share, to grow our, our, our global geographic uh, footprint. So our intention is to go back. So I'm kind of doing something that's quite, you know, familiar to me, which is, you know, taking enterprise software and then selling it in multiple geographies. So our goal is to go to Latin America and to go to Europe. And, and, and that's, you know, what, that's what we're doing with the money that we just raised. The global mindset. Eh? I love it. Completely. Completely. I love it. So, so one, of, one of the questions that I typically ask, you know, and this is going to be my last question here for today, Yuval, but, but the question is, imagine I was able to take you into a time machine. And I bring you back in time with all this knowledge, all the successes, all the lessons learned, all the failures, whatever you want to call that, but all of that knowledge. Going back in time to that moment where you were thinking about giving up your job as an architect and, and, and going at it and building your first company. If you could go back in time right before you gave that notice and you were able to sit that Uval, younger Uval down and share one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? You know, it's going to sound a little cliche, but I would say, you know, uh, confidence, you know, no fear, and never give up. Just 
keep on, you know, going for it. Just, you know, the never give up is really the, the, the I think those two things, you know, you know, don't let fear be a motivator in any, in any decision you're going to make. Uh, uh, you know, just think about the possibility, the opportunity, and the fact that, you know, you only have one life to live. You might as well do it the best way you can. And, and to, to, for different people, that's different things. I don't judge, you know, there's no judgment involved. I, I just think that for myself, going back to that, you know, young man, uh, you know, it, I would say, you know, no fear, no fear. It's all good. You know, do what you believe, you know, go for, go for it and don't, and don't give up. No matter what you, you know, you encounter, just keep on going with it. And, and, and I think that that energy, that, that energy of, of, of motivation and, and, and steadfastness is very powerful. You cannot, you know, it's very hard to, to replace that energy with anything else. And if you have it, if you have it inside of you, then you should do it and success will come. That's incredible. And for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi, Yuval? On LinkedIn, I'm Yuval B. And, uh, you know, that's a great way for people to reach out to me. Um, and, and I respond. Amazing. Well, Yuval, thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so much, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers Podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.